Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for April 1st, 2021, the impending doom edition. I am David Plotz of CityCast here in Washington, D.C., Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine and Yale University Law School joins me from New Haven. Hello, Emily. That was like an athlete introduction. Because we were just talking about all the great response we got to our basketball slate plus last week. I think that put you in the mood. My, no, it would be, I would introduce you. And now at 5-9 from... Don't say anything else. <laughs> Friends High School in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. Power forward, Emily... Aslan. That was pretty good. Then, out of UT Austin, Hook'em Horns, Andrea Valdez, the editor-in-chief of the 19th from Austin, Texas. Welcome to the Gab Fest. Hi, thanks for having me. I just want to make sure everybody knows what the 19th is. It is my new favorite publication, centering often on issues involving gender and women and policy. And um, I'm so glad Andrea helped start it. And we're going to talk more about it in the Slate Plus segment. Stay tuned. John Dickerson, you will notice, is absent. John is, I think he's on a reporting trip. Anyway, he's not here, wherever he is. He had to cares? interview a famous person. Is that right? Yeah. He's interviewing a famous person? Good for them. Good for him. Lucky, lucky famous person to be interviewed by John. Today, we are going to talk about the fourth wave. Is there a fourth wave? Is it going to swamp us? Then the trial of Derek Chauvin gets underway in Minneapolis. What can that trial accomplish? What what should our goals be for that trial? Then is child care and elder care, is that infrastructure? We are going to talk about Joe Biden's infrastructure plan and how caregiving should be incorporated into it. Plus, Emily, what a remarkable story out of France this week. Did you see that? No. That the Academy Francaise has named former Supreme Court Justice Stephen Breyer its chief magistrate. <laughs> He's the first American ever to hold the post. I mean, I think we all recall like that Breyer, who's a noted Francophile, made waves several weeks ago when he resigned from the Supreme Court, immediately accepted French citizenship. That was a shock. And then adopted. This part I thought was weird, Emily, didn't you? That he adopted the French spelling and pronunciation of his name, Breyer. Breyer, forevermore. It's yeah. like Breyer-cheese. Well, it's actually, it's an old Norman term that roughly translates as herder of donkeys. Who knew? Anyway, as chief magistrate, <laughs> the longtime American judge will make the final ruling on matters concerning the integrity of the French language. But unfortunately, none of this actually happened. Rien, jamais, because Breyer obdurately remains in his Supreme Court seat. Perdu. Yeah. Yes, our loss. Plus, of course, we will have cocktail chatter. COVID cases have been rising in the United States, more than 60,000 new cases a day and still 1,000 deaths a day, which is, of course, much less during the fall surge. But it's a horrifying number, a horrifying human cost to bear this every single day. So, Andrea, are we experiencing a fourth wave or perhaps the beginnings of a fourth wave or not? Yeah, uh, it's, you know, it's tough to say. It's certainly not good, especially those numbers you just cited there's a lot to celebrate right now. Uh, there's nearly 3 million vaccine doses being administered per day. Roughly 16% of the country is fully vaccinated. 73% of people that are older than 65 who are the higher risk, they've received at least one shot, according to the CDC. And these vaccines are highly effective. And we're also seeing the eligibility is opening up across the country. And we're in a position where the president has said that roughly 90% of all adults are going to be eligible for the vaccine by May 1st. So a lot is looking really good. And yet, as you said, the average day uh, case rate is really high right now, 60,000 cases per day. Hospitalizations are on the rise. And they're uh, all a lot of younger and younger people who are not being vaccinated right now. It's because states are reopening. I live in Texas, and in fact, on March 10th, we opened up here no mask mandates, no capacity limits for gyms or indoor dining or movie theaters, and there's a more contagious variant out there, and it's causing a more severe form of the disease. It's more highly transmissible. There's more travel. Delta opened up middle seats. So while there's a lot to be optimistic about, I think that people are beginning to want to go out and they feel as though they can go out. And consequently, cases are on the rise. The CDC director is, you know, she called it impending doom. So it certainly doesn't sound good. Can we linger in Texas for a minute? Just I'm really curious because I live in Washington, D.C. Emily 
lives in New Haven, where which is which have not opened up in the same way that Texas has. Now I know Austin is its own is its own country within Texas, but it, it does it feel like if you are out in Austin, like oh look, restaurants are full. Oh look, bars are full. Look that gym, everyone's working out in the gym. Or does it not feel that way? Yeah, well, I might not be the best test case to ask for that about that. I do live in Austin, um, which is often called the blueberry and the cherry pie here in Texas, though the cities are continuing to be little blueberries all across Texas for political reasons that I'm sure you all know. You know, I don't go out too much here. Uh, it does feel as though people are still really wearing their masks when I go on my runs. People wear their masks when I go to the store. People wear their masks. But people are out. They're going to bars. They're going to restaurants. You know, people also want to put money into the economy. They want to see their favorite places open. I'm sure in your own cities that you have restaurants, bars, you know, other places that have gone out of business. And so, you know, there's a real desire to keep that open in some capacity. Of course, takeout is a big part of, of that for restaurants. But, you know, people want to patronize these places. In other parts of the state, I have heard anecdotally that there's a little less concern, that people aren't as vigilant about the masks. You know, it depends on where you are. It depends on who you are. Yeah, I mean, I this is such a tricky and frustrating moment. I mean, this pernicious B117 and these other variants, I want to, like, strangle them all in their cradles because people are getting vaccinated and... It does feel like with the weather warming and now that we understand more about the relative safety of the outdoors, that we should be able to do more things. And yet we have this like dichotomy between people who are vaccinated and not. And we have this variant roaming around doing damage. And I just feel so awful for this, like the people are going to die in this home stretch. That's so upsetting. And I also still feel like on policy grounds, we're doing it wrong. I mean, I really wish we had followed the British and gone with the single dose vaccine regimen and gotten many more people their first dose, since that has a lot of power to um, protect people individually. And now we're learning or confirming to prevent transmission. I mean, when you look at the graph of British hospitalizations and deaths, it just looks much better than ours. And one imagines that is a factor. And now I also am a little concerned about opening up eligibility to the vaccine to everyone. On the one hand, I think it's really important to have ease of administration. Um, that has helped in my state of Connecticut, which went with this age-based formula, but then has also tried to do a lot of outreach in low-income communities to make sure there was, or at least try to have some kind of vaccine equity. But I just worry that like, when you open it up to everyone, then the people who are in the categories that need it the most are going to end up having to wait longer if they are less, like less people who can stay on the phone forever to make appointments, which is at least what it takes around here. Yeah. Although don't you feel that's a pretty temporary problem that yeah. there will be a few weeks where, where the vaccine hunters are going to take advantage of that. But then the people who are really aggressive are going to get vaccinated and it's going to, the, the amount that the manufacturers are making available is going to be enough that pretty much anyone is going to be able to get it. I'm not saying that on May 1st, they're going to be get it, but, but by May 21st, say, there's going to be this feeling that, oh yeah, it's, it's available to anyone who wants it basically at any time. I hope that that's true. Uh, if we didn't have this surge going on and this continuing death toll, I would be like able to shrug off my concern about this. I mean, the amazing thing is, of course, just if you look at where the hospitalizations are much younger people, the the deaths and hospitalization among the elderly are, are have gone down so fast as they have in other countries that have vaccinated a lot of their elderly. And that's such a good sign. I mean, this is a this is a, a absolute triumph of human ingenuity and engineering to have made this vaccine so quickly and for it to be clearly so effective. And there was that great news this week that the the testing in 12 to 15-year-olds. I have a 12-year-old, so I'm excited about this. Yes, hallelujah. 12 to 15-year-olds, It's the the um, which uh, the Pfizer vaccine, I think it was. The Pfizer vaccine was extraordinarily effective with them. So And no serious side effects in that study. What what do you guys think is the what is the point at which we're going to be able to say we've effectively beaten this? It's not that the virus will have disappeared. There will still be thousands, even 10,000 cases a day we can get back to doing going to live concerts and and you know yelling at bars at each other what is the point that that becomes actually viable for 
the people who are skeptical of it now, which is, you know, which is half the country is skeptical of that now. Half the country is not skeptical of the vaccine. That's not true. No, no, I don't mean skeptical of the vaccine. I mean skeptical of going back to regular life. There, half oh, the country yeah. has gone back to regular life. Yes. What about the half of the country, of which I think all three of us are continued, who have not gone back to regular life? What is the point at which we are, we tell ourselves, oh, we can do it? What is the marker for us? I mean, I've read that herd immunity, you know, which kicks in when roughly 70 to 90 percent of people acquire the resistance to the vaccine. I've read reports that we should reach that by July. Look, I'm no scientist. It seems a little ambitious, but it feels like summer and fall is when I think people will begin to have more comfort. There, of course, like you said, will continue to be outbreaks and the places that have been vaccine resistant will continue to have outbreaks. A lot of people are being vaccinated right now, but I am nervous about the people who aren't being vaccinated who do contract it right here kind of in the, you know, waning days, you know, fingers crossed of uh, this, you know, this surge, this fourth surge and the effects of long COVID. I, I mean, I think that's still something that people are going to be scared, especially if they've been infected before. And we have heard that there's low rates of reinfection, very, very low rates of reinfection. But I imagine that's going to be a continued point of concern for people until we actually educate them on the efficacy of the vaccine and the really low rates of reinfection. I mean, my answer has to do, first of all, with the death rate um, and hospitalization, because they're connected. But also, I think it's going to be gradual and rolling an individual and have to do somewhat with where you live. And, you know, people send each other signals and somewhat with just like personal risk budgeting. And over time, we've all been making these calculations day after day about what kind of risk budget we want to have and like who in your family gets to spend it and what they spend it on. And I think those... That's going to continue, at least in my head, for a while. Even though I'm impatient to be done with the whole thing, I think I'm going to feel like there are certain steps that are worth taking and other things I am more willing to put off, um, like being in a really big crowd indoors. That's going to take me a while. Do you guys think that this current growth, this current surge, if it is a surge or this, this uptick in case, is this our fault? Is it because we're being stupid and because our governments are being stupid or or is this just inevitable? It was going to happen no matter what because we have variants and they're just more transmissible. Really I think we have some blame. I mean, like I said, I think we should have done single dose vaccines. That was a public policy decision. Sorry, Andrea, you were going to speak. I think it's hard to blame the public personally. I mean, yes, I agree that there is some blame, but also it's a matter of, you know, information, getting the vaccines to the places where we needed to, to low income communities, to communities where people are interfacing more with the public, where you just have more, you know, social networking or, you know, larger social networks. So, I don't want to put too much blame on, you know, individuals. Um, it, but yeah, I suppose it is a confluence of, again, pandemic fatigue, I think is real, both from the government standpoint and the, you know, personal individual standpoint. I want to close on this question of, of uh, I was going to say yellow fever passports, vaccine passports, but I was reminded, of course, of yellow fever passports. The Republicans are are turning this into a culture war battle. They're, they are claiming there's an effort on the left to have uh, passports that will limit people's ability to travel and mingle. Uh, only those who are vaccinated will be allowed to to get on a plane or whatever it is. There doesn't seem to be any evidence that there are actually plans for any kind of federal. In fact, there absolutely are not plans for any kind of federal vaccine passport. Should there be, Emily, from either a legal or public health perspective, do you think it is worth it for there to be some kind of vaccine uh, card that you carry? I'm... I do not personally, but go ahead. So, and why do you not? Because I think by the time, I think the time it will take to get that thing, to get the infrastructure of that set up, we will have reached whatever herd immunity we're going to reach. And it's just like, why bother to have done that? Everyone will have changed their behavior. Everyone will be out and about. And it's just, it's a matter of just a couple of weeks before, you know, it's a couple of months before we get there. We're not going to put in a vaccine passport system in the next two months. If other countries want to make require us to bring vaccine passports in order to enter their country, that's their own business. That's not the U.S.'s business. 
Yeah, I think that's right. I also worry that the political backlash could do more harm than good at a moment where we're trying to persuade people, I think, correctly that the evidence shows that the vaccines are good and safe and making it some government mandate that then becomes like a big right wing talking point doesn't seem particularly helpful. You know, it's possible that if this lingers in a more lethal way than we hope that we will need some kind of proof. But I really, really hope that doesn't happen. I am, however, wondering if employers and other big institutions like universities are going to need to play somewhat of a role here in terms of telling people that they want to come back to work or they want to enroll in school in the fall, they have to be vaccinated. Jonathan Holloway, who's the president of Rutgers and an old friend of ours, said that about his institution. And you know, if, if it's not necessary, if we reach herd immunity without that kind of um, requirement, then that's all to the good. But we have lots of vaccination requirements with some limited exemptions for people to work and go to school. That's pretty normal. If it does take a little bit of um, that kind of pressure to get people who are reluctant to do this and we need that for herd immunity, that seems like something that could start to be an issue later in the summer or fall. Are there any vaccination requirements that are not on children? I can't quite remember the last time I switched jobs, but I think that I had to provide some evidence, although maybe I'm making that up. I think it's you're definitely that true up. that to go to college, you need yeah, to Yeah, when you go into you college, have, yeah. for sure, which is 18, that's an adult. That's only a segment of the population, but it's just, it is... It has been a regular part of some areas of normal life, and that seems like an important thing to remember right now. This episode of The GapFest is sponsored by Aura Frames. Are you ready to win Mother's Day? Cement your reputation as the best gift giver in your family? Give the moms in your life an Aura digital picture frame preloaded with decades of family photos. That mom will love looking back on childhood memories, seeing you what you're up to today, checking out grandkids, checking out cousins. And even better, with unlimited storage and an easy-to-use app, you can keep on updating your mom's frame with new photos so that it's a gift that keeps on giving. This is how I live in my family. I gave my mother an Aura frame. It was either for Mother's Day or for her birthday. She absolutely adores it. She's constantly hectoring me to update it with more photos, which I do. I also gave my girlfriend's mother an Aura frame. And I hope she hectors my girlfriend to update it with more photos. But it is a present that will bring absolute delight to a mother in your life. And they have a great deal for Mother's Day. GapFest listeners can save on this perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A-Frames.com. Use code GapFest at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The Derek Chauvin trial is underway in Minnesota. It's the first trial in Minnesota state history to be broadcast on television. Chauvin, you remember, is the veteran police officer who held down George Floyd for nine minutes back in May of 2020 with his knee to his neck, causing Floyd's death, according to prosecutors, though that Chauvin apparently will dispute that. So let's start with what this trial is about. So what is Chauvin charged with and why, Emily? Chauvin is charged with second degree and third degree murder in Minnesota. And I believe it is the second degree murder charge that rests on an underlying felony. And Minnesota is very unusual in that that underlying felony is the assault on Floyd as opposed to an additional crime. Usually when people get charged with felony murder, it's like they were there, some, there was a robbery and someone also got shot. Um, and so we worry about that because it's sort of ups the punishment or the category of people eligible for murder charges. At least I worry about that. And this is like a weird statute, which normally I would not be excited about. You know, in this case, it just feels to me like criminal punishment and accountability for Officer Chauvin is essential. That because this videotape is so brutal and clear and everybody has seen it and there has been so much trauma both in Minneapolis and nationally, and especially to the people who witnessed it, it feels like it's going to be very hard to accept a verdict that does not have a finding of guilt in it. 
like you said, David, there's going to be all kinds of questions about causation because the official state op- autopsy showed that there were drugs in his blood, um, fentanyl and methamphetamine. And so the um, defense is going to argue that this like terrible crushing that Chauvin did was not the actual cause of death. I just, I like, yeah, it's good. That's going to be a little hard to take because it also is a kind of form of victim blaming. I mean, what has really struck me about the trial so far has just been the anguish of the witnesses. Um, and it's just made me remember how horrible this whole this whole moment was and remains. Yeah. Andrea, the, the early witnesses, it's just shocking. I mean, Donald Williams, who made a 911 call to the police, to call the police on the police. I watched that and I wept watching it. It was extraordinarily powerful. And yet that runs up against the fact that it is ex- incredibly hard to charge and convict officers who commit violence against the public. In this case, Chauvin has been charged, but lots of officers in the past have been charged and just not convicted. Is there anything that you think makes this case different? That there's an explosive video that everybody has seen, certainly, I think, and that is going to be a key piece of evidence um, for the prosecutors. And then to your point, the witnesses and the anguish that they felt and the desperation that they testified to earlier this week, I think is certainly powerful. Earlier, we saw Darnella Frazier, who was the 17-year-old who actually captured that video on her cell phone, testifying that she had been going to the convenience store with her nine-year-old cousin. They were going to get snacks. Um, She sent her nine-year-old cousin into the store so the the child wouldn't see it. Um, But Frazier was one of the first people on the scene. She began filming, and she captured those nine minutes that we have all seen and have been seen around the world. And she was asked by the prosecutors, how did the filming affect your life? And she said very emotionally, if I can quote, when I look at George Floyd, I look at my dad, I look at my brothers, I look at my cousins, my uncles, because they're all black. I look at how that could have been one of them. It's been nights I stayed up apologizing and apologizing to George Floyd for not doing more and not physically interacting and not saving his life. Darnella was 17 years old at the time, a child. Uh, you know, they couldn't even show her face during the live streaming of this trial. And there were three other young, uh, you know, young teenagers and the third grader, the the cousin, the nine-year-old also testified. And so the notion that these, you know, four young girls who could, in essence, witness this killing, but can't be shown, you know, in the trial itself and cannot be shown on camera, it causes, I think, this, you know, real cognitive dissonance for what it is that we are allowing and seeing in uh, our society. And I do think that that's pretty powerful stuff. That's a really good point. One thing that has struck me listening to these witnesses is that sometimes in these moments, I imagine myself at the scene, like in this kind of ridiculous way, you sort of have a fantasy about what you would have done or which is kind of embarrassing. But what I keep thinking is how much these people did do. Like, they really mounted a, like, serious protest and effort to save George Floyd. They did, it seems like, exactly what we all wish in our fantasies that we would do, and it wasn't enough. And it was tough to listen to the defense try to argue that the crowd's anger had somehow, you know, distracted Chauvin and in some way was to blame or helped cause this death. I mean, that just seemed so outrageous and just deeply infuriating because you have to be able to protest violence like that, even if it is coming from the state. Yeah, it's amazing that they knew, like that everyone knew what was going on was wrong. Like all of these people observing it, even the some of the other officers participating in it knew that what was going on was wrong and yet were completely unable to stop it. I suspect that if something like this happened today, there would I mean, the level of 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 upset and the, the possibility of actual physical intervention by the crowd would have been much higher. I think people would have intervened to stop it and at the risk of their own lives because people are you know, have seen that the the cops failure so profoundly. I guess I'm what I'm wondering about is as a matter of law, Emily, like they are gonna make this defense that that Floyd had these drugs in the system. They are gonna make this defense that Chauvin was doing his job. It was just trying to, you know, maintain the the arrest and could, you know, was because he was being so harassed by this crowd around him, he couldn't pay attention to Floyd's well being in the way that 
he might have otherwise, and that, that this is just, ha- you know, the what we need are officers who are risking their lives to do every day, and that there will be two or three jurors who will be sympathetic to that, and that you could have a hung jury or an acquittal. Not an acquittal, I think, but a hung jury in that case. I mean, it's possible. It is important that the prosecution doesn't have to prove that Chauvin intended to kill Floyd. One of the charges has language about negligence in it. This may feel to people like it rises way beyond the level of negligence, but I take comfort in the idea that, like, if you, I mean, I don't know how you could not see at least negligence here. And while you're right about lots of cops who have been involved, who have killed people and not been convicted, there are police officers in the last few years who are in prison for these kinds of killings. And so we have seen juries that have been willing to take that step. And yeah, I mean, we'll have to see. This is our system, for better or worse. Andrea, there was a, it's been reported there was a plea bargain that Chauvin made months and months ago and that Bill Barr, then the attorney general, overrode that plea bargain because it involved a, an agreement that the feds would not prosecute Chauvin separately. Uh, and Barr said effectively, I think that, he, that it would have been too quick to make this plea bargain. He didn't want to give up the federal right to prosecute and he wasn't sure that the punishment was going to be sufficient. I also think that Barr, I mean, this may have been a very prescient decision on his part. It, in the sense that there is a there is a value in a public trial, right? Yeah. I mean, I, I think, especially in this particular situation, you know, just because it caused so many protests and had such, you know, worldwide impact, I think people, they want to hear more about it. They want to see more about it. And I think that there's a real desire um, on the on the part of many for justice and accountability. And to your point about so few police are ever prosecuted, um, indicted, sometimes not, charged, sometimes not. Uh, convictions are even more rare. And so, you know, the notion of, I think we've heard rallying cries before, you know, what does justice look like for Black Americans? I think people want to see that uh, play out in public. Yeah, I mean, you know, the plea bargain was for 10 years in prison, which, you know, I'm not someone who's excited about really long prison sentences. So that seemed to me like a significant amount of time. Lots of people would disagree with that. It's a big gamble. I mean, if you think that it's really important for Chauvin to go to prison and he gets off, then it's going to look like that was not helpful to uh, scuttle this plea bargain. But I do take your point about the kind of cathartic nature of a trial in a case like this. Right. And even if Chauvin is convicted, I mean, it's important to note he is unlikely to get more than 12 years in right. prison so, anyway. So yeah. it, so, so it's, I don't think the value of this case is is the capacity to send Chauvin to prison for a lot longer. I think the value is that the public accountability, the public presentation of this case, the public review of it, and potentially a jury certifying his guilt is really important in a way that a plea bargain that had the same, you know, practical result for Chauvin, he goes to prison, would would not be. The, yeah, that's a good point. Andrea, there are three other officers who were involved in this case, the three other officers who assisted Chauvin that day. It's clear Chauvin was clearly the ringleader. He was the, by far the most experienced. Two of the officers effectively were like on their first week on the job uh, and, you know, were, were extremely inexperienced. And the third officer who was, was uh, slightly more experienced actually didn't, was not involved in, in restraining Floyd, although he was assisting in crowd control. But they will face trial in the fall, if I think if Chauvin is convicted, I think if Chauvin isn't convicted, they'll probably end up dropping those charges. Uh, do you think they should be tried to? Uh, this is really tough. I mean, to the point that you just made, if if Chauvin isn't convicted, you know, I'm not sure the charges will stick. And, you know, two of these officers, as you said, I think one was maybe on his third shift, you know, and another was, you know, maybe first week on the job. Both of them were, it has been said, you know, following Chauvin, shadowing him. It's clear to me that there needs to be more training for how officers talk with, interact with other officers when there are these kinds of big questions of excessive use of force at play. Slate Plus members, you get bonus segments on the GabFest and other Slate podcasts. You also get to support the great journalism that Slate does. You get to help us make this show for you every week. So we appreciate your Slate Plus membership, which you can get by going to slate.com slash GabFestPlus. 
And we have a bonus segment for you this week. Andrea and I are both running media startups. We are going to ask each other hard questions about problems that you need to solve that come with having a media startup and how we've tried to solve them. And Emily Bazelon will ask questions. I'm just going to learn. Emily Bazelon will ask questions from the sidelines. Go to slate.com slash GabFest plus. The Biden infrastructure plan unveiled, 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 unveiled on Wednesday is just enormous. It is enormous. It is mind-boggling how much money is being proposed to spend on transportation, water systems, broadband, modernizing schools, improving public housing, amelioration against climate change, investing in community college. It's just a huge amount, $2 trillion or so in investment in an America that is crumbling. One of the big questions in it, and one of the things that Andrea is going to explain to us, is how uh, caregiving fits into this. That there is a move in this bill and then in plans for, for future bills that the Biden administration will propose to have enormous federal funding for child care, elder care, just the whole caregiving infrastructure of the United States uh, included in this in this infrastructure. We think of infrastructure as being bridges and trains. So how is caregiving infrastructure? What would it mean to invest in it like infrastructure? Yeah. So as you said, so we just saw the American Rescue Plan, which was the, you know, the legislation that was recently passed, the $1.9 trillion legislation that, um, you know, Congress and the president signed uh, Uh, A few weeks ago, on Wednesday of this week, Biden unveiled the American Jobs Plan. So to your point, David, that was legislation that um, is a focus on jobs, infrastructure, things that we think of with regards to infrastructure, clean water, broadband internet, upgrading buildings, upgrading bridges. But what's interesting is there was a lot of chatter before Biden addressed the nation yesterday that there would be some aspects of what has been called human infrastructure, broadening infrastructure beyond that traditional definition of bridges and roads and including the caregiving economy. And so when the plan was unveiled yesterday, I think there was actually some expectation that that there would be more uh, discussion around this caregiving aspect of, uh, you know, infrastructure. And there wasn't as much, but it seemed as though based on what the president said in his address, that there's going to be a third plan, something called the American Families Plan, that's going to be coming date to be determined, that will be really addressing some of the aspects of this caregiving economy. So child care, elder care, care of folks with disabilities. But what we saw yesterday is the president says he wants to, quote, solidify the infrastructure of our care economy by creating jobs and raising wages and benefits for essential home care workers. So what does that mean? So in the plan, it says that there's going to be $400 billion, a lot of money, put toward expanding access to quality, affordable home or community-based care for your aging relatives and people with disabilities. And the plan has really two points that address this, the caregiving economy aspect of this. So first is expanding access to long-term care services through a program through Medicaid called the Home and Community-Based Services Program. And that allows beneficiaries of that program to receive services in their own home or in their community rather than going to institutions or being in isolated settings. And that expansion also would include, according to the plan, providing well-paying caregiving jobs that have benefits and support for workers. And this is hugely important because the people who are in these caregiving jobs, they are really, really underpaid. The average wage for caregivers is $12 an hour. And I think it's 20% of the folks who have these jobs, they live in poverty. So this is a real jobs issue. And it's something that I think that the Biden administration is trying to address. But caregiving in general is also a women's issue. 90% of the people who have these jobs are women and 40% of them are women of color. So hugely underpaid, huge, disproportionately women, disproportionately women of color. And so I think through this particular part of the plan, it's a matter of trying to bolster and, uh, you know, support those particular workers. Emily, the, the representation of women in the U.S. labor force has dropped to a level that's barely, it's dropped to a level uh, that hasn't been seen since the 80s. There are 2.5 million women who've left the workforce in pandemic. There were 400,000 childcare jobs lost in pandemic. 200,000 of them have not come back. And in general, the percentage of women in the workforce 
so not only with the lowest level since 88, but the percentage of women in the workforce has been declining steadily since 2000. Why, why is that? No, no, I mean, you I, go ahead. I want to hear just your so hard to t- so I, I mean, can rip it to shreds. Just kidding. No, it's so hard to take care of children. Like, it's so mm-hmm. hard to find ways to take care of your children. Yes. And it is, it's just really expensive. Childcare in this country is really expensive. It is inconveniently located. It is confusing. It is uh, not publicly, uh, it's not offered as a public good. It is, it is only done privately, effectively, for until you get to preschool age. And that just makes it really difficult for a certain number of women to to work. And so they've stayed out of the workforce and taken care of their children instead, even though they don't want to. Right. Or some of them do want to, and that's fine. And then the other strand of this has to do with, like, our welfare policies, right? I mean, we really, for low-income women, created all these sticks to push people back into work by taking away traditional welfare, by putting all these work requirements into the programs that continue to exist. And so I feel like this is... I mean, the pandemic part of this seems like women shouldered more of the burden of kids being home from school or losing their childcare, and that is a real loss to a lot of the women in those jobs and a return in some cases to a more traditional family structure, which if you're a feminist, um, one looks at with wariness. I do think at the same time, there are some women who want to, some people, but more of them still in our society are women, who want to stay home with their kids when they are really little. I worry about the um, pressure on poor women to work that doesn't apply to everybody that is also part of this picture. So, you know, I think you're totally right, David, that if we had affordable, good quality, accessible childcare, that is like the that that's like the obvious policy lever to pull, right? Because then you're giving people an improved set of choices. And then we can see what people really want to do when they have that as like a viable option for themselves. Right now, it's out of reach for some people and difficult to access for others. Yeah. And there are childcare deserts all across the nation. And Presumably, the American Families Plan, which will be coming, you know, from the Biden administration, will address this very thing. Childcare is—it's a—the industry itself is a hugely difficult problem to figure out. Um, they operate on extraordinarily slim margins. You know, there are lots of good, uh, reasonable, you know, regulations around this. You want your children to be safe, but because there's lots of regulations, it's really hard to open them. It's hard to open them in places, you know, where you might not have the knowledge around how to navigate those regulations or the, the money to, you know, pay for the, the fees and, you know, all the various things it would take in order to open those childcare centers. So presumably there will be funding in this next set of legislation that addresses some of this. But to your point, Emily, it's also that there's just not a safety net for women who have to go back to work. So there's no paid family leave infrastructure in America. We see that is often the case in wealthy nations across the globe that there's some sort of paid family leave and there's no paid family leave here. So you have no option to, if you need to stay home from work, for example, if there's a pandemic and your children are out of school, um, you can't do that. So it's a confluence of issues that are really at play here. Yeah. I mean, the other thing I like about thinking of in-home care and child care, two different things as part of infrastructure, is that these could be good jobs in a way that, Andrea, you were pointing out, like they often are woefully deficient, both in terms of pay and benefits. I mean, I know people who've done in-home care, I know, and it's just hard. It tends to be a kind of revolving door, like they haven't been treated well. It doesn't, it, right. it often doesn't lead anywhere. And it, you could imagine a set of supports around that that gave it more value, both social value and actually, and also actual value to people. I mean, we live in a market-based economy, and so I haven't done the math to see how all of that would work, but it does seem like a way to really change the work equation. I was was just doing some math in my head today as I was thinking about this, um, which is, let's say there are 30 million Americans who need some form of care, which seems to me like a really small number. I bet it's actually higher, but 30 million, which is uh, you know, 8% of the population, $20 an hour, one hour of care is $600 million for one hour of care on one day for those people. And if you think of that, they probably need 10 hours of care. So that's $6 billion a day. That's over 365 days. That's 
you know, $2 trillion wow. just to think of it in those terms, like just the cost of that kind of care is an enormous amount of money. And we don't, it's, it's like not, it's not, you know, most of it just falls on family members. Most of it falls. And there are a lot of people in this country, whether with disabilities, elderly, children who have huge needs and the failure to think about that and think about how to deal with that is, it's a real it's a real uh, mistake that we've made. I guess my question is, do you guys think that these bills are going to pass? Either this first infrastructure bill or the second one, which I feel like they've made, they've put the human infrastructure piece in the second bill because they don't think they can pass it in the first one, which suggests that maybe they can't pass it. Well, that's my fear. Later that- either. Yeah, I felt a little worried about that. Andrea, what do you think about that separation? Yeah, that's, I think, probably the fear of the advocates that are out there agitating for this kind of legislation is that, you know, by separating this from, you know, into another bill with presumably a giant price tag, Biden campaigned on something similar. It was $775 billion on the campaign trail then. So we're looking probably at least that, uh, if not more. So if there's another proposal with a capital T trillion dollar price tag, I think it's going to be really hard, especially after what at that point we'll have spent close to $6 trillion. If If we haven't already spent that much already. I'd have to go back to look at the CARES Act and the stimulus plan from this um, past year. But, you know, we've spent trillions already. And to ask, uh, you know, a very slim margin in the House for Democrats and, you know, an evenly divided Senate to come back and say yes to this and try and use reconciliation one more time or two more times, I think is going to be a really tough sell politically. Yeah, I think some version of this infrastructure bill will pass. It's so huge. I haven't gotten my mind around it yet. And whenever I see price tags this big, I will confess that it makes me anxious to imagine the government spending that much money. That said, I really like some elements of this. I mean, I love the R&D, the research and development funds for alternative energy, the internet broadband, helping with the electricity grid. Like, there are some, there's some good stuff in here. I love this bill. I love it. You love love it it all. I love it. I can't. (laughs) I think we should pay for I mean, the, it's not even that much money when you think about it. It's over 10 years. It's you know, a couple true. hundred billion extra a year. It's it's pocket change. It is. It would be so well spent. I really hope it passes. And there's a lot of people who don't mind what Biden has suggested as, would, as what would pay for it, which is raising the corporate tax rate from 21% back to 28%. And, you know, Biden said in his address that he wouldn't raise the taxes on anyone who was making less than $400,000 a year. And so asking corporations to pay their fair share of taxes and asking the wealthy to pay taxes, I think a lot of Americans can buy on to that. I think that that his statement is actually about he did he, he you said what he said Andrea but I think what's actually true is four hundred thousand dollars for a family not an individual that is yes absolutely I uh you know even if they even if they just spent the money it would still be money well spent even if they just borrowed it and drove up the the debt even further it would still be fine even if they couldn't rake it back from the rich who've been been ex- benefited disproportionately in this extraordinarily unfair way. But when you uh, think it of it would still be fine. It would be great to it would be great to get the money back from them. Well, when you think of raking it fine. back from these corporations, you think, "Oh, look, you know, this money is being spent to broadly benefit our society and like improve the quality of our lives by helping with transportation and putting more electric cars on the road and, you know, clean energy, etc., etc., etc." Like yeah. yeah, no, sure, the corporations. I meant indiv- rich, in- rich families and rich individuals. Like, by all means, tax them more. All right, let's go to cocktail chatter. When uh, you are sitting, Emily, finally spring has come to New Haven. You're having a delicious, delicious uh, glass of Pinot Noir on your porch. What are you going to be chattering about? with your neighbors who are hopefully vaccinated or your whole vaccinated state with all those vaccinated people, what will you chatter about? So I bet I actually won't be chattering about this because the Supreme Court is not my favorite topic right now. However, there is one case the court is considering, has not accepted yet, that it will um, reconsider in a conference this week and perhaps beyond that I'm watching very closely. It is called New York State Rifle and Pistol Association Incorporated versus Corlett. 
And what's at stake in this case are the licensing laws for guns in New York that make it hard to carry a gun out in public. New York basically has like a presumption that you don't get to carry a gun outside your house. It has been associated, these strict gun regulations, with relatively low gun ownership in New York and relatively low gun violence historically in New York. Now, a bunch of plaintiffs want to say that this is a violation of the Second Amendment, that New York goes way too far, and that it should be significantly easier to get one of these permits. And this is like the kind of step of starting to break down state gun laws that has been like in the wings since Heller, which was the Supreme Court's 2008 decision saying there is an individual right to bear arms in the Second Amendment. But we just haven't really seen it come to fruition yet, except with like total handgun bans in particular cities. And so this case is really a big deal. And it just looks perfectly teed up for this new emboldened conservative majority. So um, we will see what happens. I will later report back. Andrea, when you are having a a margarita and brisket down in <laughs> Austin. What are you going to be chattering about? As I do every day. It's all we do in Texas. Is I thought so. I thought so. <laughs> Good for you. I knew that. With your and then after breakfast tacos, right? Yeah, I do actually have uh, a, a sinful amount of breakfast tacos, and I'll never stop. Um, my chatter is actually Texas related. Uh, it's a bit melancholy, but it's about the legacy of two Texans. One is the arguable king of Texas letters, Larry McMurtry, and the second is the inarguable queen of Tejano, Selena. So last week, Larry McMurtry uh, died at the age of 84 in his home in Archer City, Texas. Archer City is this tiny town in North Texas, roughly 2,000 people, and it was the inspiration for the fictional town of Thalia, which was featured in several of his books, including The Last Picture Show. Perhaps you've seen the movie that's based on the book. McMurtry was extraordinarily prolific. He wrote more than 30 novels, 14 books of nonfiction, 40 screenplays, teleplays, like tons of essays and articles and reviews. And he wrote five pages a day, which I guess is how you get to write that much material. But he's really most famous for uh, Lonesome Dove, his Pulitzer-winning novel, a doorstopper of a novel. And he wrote that because he wanted to shatter the Texas myth, but really he just burnished it with that book, especially when it turned into a hit television series, which maybe y'all have seen, that started Robert Duvall and Tommy Lee Jones and Ricky Schroeder. And Skip Hollinsworth wrote this really great remembrance of uh, Larry McMurtry. And in it, he has this great line, Skip writes, to Texans, Lonesome Dove was the third most important book in publishing history right behind the Bible and the Warren Commission report. So basically, every Texan I know has a story of when they first read Lonesome Dove. But for me, my personal favorite is Terms of Endearment, which is a lovely book, also a movie starring Deborah Winger and Shirley MacLaine. But it's set in my native Houston, and it's just a wonderful story of the enduring love between a mother and a daughter. And I just really wanted to stop and celebrate Larry McMurtry, who really personified a part of the Texas identity. But then on the other part of the Texas spectrum and Texas identity, I think, is Selena Quintanilla Perez, who is the Queen of Tejano. She was killed 26 years ago on March 31st. When she was 23 years old, she was killed by the president of her fan club outside of a Days Inn in Corpus Christi, her hometown. And on April 16th of this year, Selena would have been 50 years old, which is really wild to think about. Her story is really well known. It was, you know, captured in a movie that Jennifer Lopez starred in that really catapulted Jennifer Lopez to fame. But really, Selena's most famous performance, I would say, was her wonderful concert at the Houston Livestock Show and Rodeo. And it's really famous. All the videos are on YouTube. And I watched a bunch of them the other day, including my favorite, La Cargacha, which means the jalopy. And she's just in her sparkly purple suit and her silver he like high-heeled boots. And she's twirling around. And her microphone is smothered in her lipstick. And it's just such a great performance, and I really invite people to go and watch that so that they can understand why Selena's legacy has endured 26 years after her death. My chatter. So I have talked a little bit about my new venture, CityCast. I'm here today, finally, to give my chatter over to CityCast Chicago. So CityCast Chicago is a daily Monday to Friday podcast and newsletter. It comes every morning, every weekday morning at 6 a.m., 
And its goal is to make our listeners care more about their city, or in this case, Chicago. So you GabFest listeners, your podcast listeners, you love podcasts. You know what makes podcasts special, uh, which is why I wanted to use my chatter today to introduce you on the GabFest to CityCast Chicago's host, Jacoby Cochran. So Jacoby is a remarkable person. He's a Chicagoan through and through. He's funny. He's smart. He's warm. He's endlessly curious. And I wanted you to meet him here on the GabFest. And I hope by meeting him here, you will be interested in hearing more from him and subscribing to CityCast at citycast.fm slash Chicago. So I asked Jacoby what people outside of Chicago get wrong about his city all the time. And then I followed up by asking him a slightly goofier question as well. So listen here. I think when people talk about violence in other places, there is more nuance, more complexity, and context is offered uh, with more reticence. But when we talk about Chicago, it's almost a throwaway, just like, oh, it's Chicago. That happens in Chicago. And I was talking to a journalist last week who was talking in regard to corruption. And I think what she said about corruption is similar to violence. Just because Chicago has a history or a reputation for these does not mean the people living here deserve to carry that burden. Um, we should not be looked down upon as if violence in our city and trauma in our city is dismissed because of how often it seems to take place. If anything, you should embrace us. You should uh, bring us closer, offer us more warmth as we try and navigate the consequences of systemic injustice and racism and redlining, things that none of us had anything to do with. Uh, Jacoby, you are a deep-rooted Chicagoan. What is one of your earliest memories of your city? <laughs> I know you and I have talked a lot about roller skating, and the reason I bring it up so much is because of how ingrained in my DNA it is. My earliest memory is my mother teaching me how to roller skate, and she did it in the exact same way as you would possibly teach a kid how to walk. She just kept backing up as I would fall down and cry. And she would keep backing up as I would get <laughs> up and cry. But my earliest memory is just, you know, kind of busting my knee and busting my lip on the skating rink floors across Chicago with arguably the most legendary roller skater of all time, Sweet Tea. Um, and so for me, those horns at the top of the show for CityCast Chicago are so important to me because the horns of James Brown music is literally the soundtrack to my childhood. What's your favorite roller skating move? Uh, a big wheel. And it's because of how hard it was to learn. It, it takes a little bit of flexibility. Uh, it takes a lot of speed and smoothness. Um, and. I have this video of me doing a big wheel that I just watch over and over and over because I don't think I'll ever be able to do it as smooth again in my life. Yeah, you won't, man. Now that you're hitting 30, 30 days till 30 in my knees. I just gonna, uh, already know. I'm it. here to tell you from the future that it's just not going to happen. <laughs> Jacoby Cochran is the host of CityCast Chicago. Listen to it. Go to citycast.fm slash Chicago. Next week, I'm going to just log roll one more time. I'm going to talk to Bree Davies, our CityCast Denver host. And you can get a sample of that because so we've now launched in Chicago and Denver. Listeners, you, dear listeners, continue to send us great chatters by tweeting them to us at, at SlateGabFest. And this week, we have a listener chatter from Wally. My name is Wally Vanofskis. I live in the Lehigh Valley of Pennsylvania, north of Philadelphia. The chatter I'd like to share is from the Smithsonian Magazine. A shout out to my daughter, Carissa, in Colorado, who tweeted this to me. It's the story of a young scientist. Her name is Deja Taylor. She's 17 years old from Iowa City, Iowa, and she's developed a novel suture additive using beet extract to assess for surgical wound infection. What she did was create sutures using beet juice that change color when infection is present. Beets apparently are a natural indicator. Who knew? She's received a bunch of awards for this. She's been named a finalist in the National Science Competition. And there's a really great video of her on the Society for Science Facebook page talking about her project. On top of the fact that this 17-year-old high schooler developed this amazing technology is the fact that there are huge implications for this in that there are many people in developing countries who die of these kinds of surgical site infections, which often go undetected, twice the rate than in the United States. 
These sutures potentially could save countless lives in developing countries. It's amazing. So if you pause after reading this story, if you listen quietly, you can hear the sounds of glass ceilings being broken, barriers being knocked down, and history being made by this smart and bold young woman. I love that. One more reason to love beets. As if you needed another one. <laughs> I do not love beets, but now I'm going to start. You don't? That's so sad what? for you. What a no, loss. No, I don't. You, know, you don't even like, like them roasted? I, I like roast beets. I hate borscht so much. Borscht revolts me. Uh, and that was my first encounter with beets. It was only later in life when I started having beets roasted and, and, and shaved. And that that's okay. But the borscht really tarred me and scarred me. Hmm. Do you guys like borscht? I like, I do. Well, I like cold beet soup, which is a little different. There's this one place near my house that makes delicious beet soup. Um, The Soup Girl, if anyone is wondering. But uh, what I don't like is how beets are now present in every salad in this boring way. And they're, yeah, that's become boring, I should say. In true Texas fashion, I like fried beets. (laughs) Oh, of course. There would be such a thing. Who knew? (laughs) <laughs> no. What is a fried beet? Is it like a French fry? Well, the way that I've had them is just cut up and fried, not breaded or anything, and then with some sort of mayonnaise-based dipping sauce or sour cream-based dipping sauce, which is just good. They're soft. But in a French in a French fry shape or in a in a round? I've had them in like a little cube shape, and they're delicious. Huh. Huh. That's our show for today. The Gap Fest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Bridget Dunlap. Gabriel Roth is editorial director of Slate Audio. June Thomas is managing producer. Alicia Montgomery is executive producer of Slate Podcast. You should follow us on Twitter at, at @SlateGabFest and tweet chatter to us there. For Emily Bazelon and Andrea Valdez, I'm David Plotz. Thank you for listening. We will talk to you next week. John will be back. I assume he will be back because he will have finished interviewing whatever famous person he's interviewing. Hello, Slate Plus. How are you? Good. Glad to hear it. Okay. Andrea, you are the editor-in-chief of a startup, The 19th. So let's start by talking about what the startup is and what The 19th does and how it works. And then let's talk about some of the problems that we need to solve because I am the CEO also of a media startup, CityCast. And I'm sure we face some of the same problems. So let's, let's get into some of the practicalities and the weeds. But let's hear about the 19th. So how big is your staff? What do you guys do? How does it work? Yeah, so the 19th is a new media organization. So we report on this uh, intersection of gender, politics, and policy. We started in January. I went into the office for about three or four weeks, went on vacation, and came back, and the world shut down. So it's been a really interesting journey for the last um, 14 or so months. Uh, but in that time, we hired uh, eight reporters, another editor. Our staff is now, in in the last year, we've grown to be 26 or 27 people, and we're hiring four or five more. So we are really growing. It has been, as I said, quite a journey of discovery to start a company in a pandemic. Haven't met most of the staff in person. Our newsroom is distributed, so we have reporters in Iowa, in Florida, in California, uh, in Indiana. So we have folks all over the place. And what, so, what are examples of things that you guys cover? We have several beat reporters. One, uh, let's see, we have you know gender in the economy, gender and healthcare. Uh, you know, we write a lot about uh, state houses, so you know women in state houses, um, LGBTQ issues. Uh, we're really interested in you know just looking at how gender equity is impacting virtually every part of our lives. And there is certainly a lot to write about right now. We really realized when the pandemic started that the pandemic was impacting uh, women and LGBTQ people disproportionately um, in mostly every single way, except for mortality rates. So there's a lot to write about, uh, you know, with regards to infrastructure, caregiving, the economy, um, you know, just loads, loads for us to cover. And are you guys a uh, just digital print or do you guys do a podcast? Do you do video? Do you do Instagram stories? 
Yeah, so right now we're just uh, a, we're a website, 19thnews.org, uh, and we do have a newsletter. We have uh, presence in all the various social platforms, so please do follow us there at 19th News in most places. We're a nonprofit independent newsroom, but we've struck a lot of partnerships with various other places. So we have a partnership with uh, USA Today. They publish our stuff. Our uh, stories are free to read, which is important to us, and free to republish. So any place can republish our stories. We've made it really easy on our website to do that. Um, and we also also have a publishing partnership with Univision. So we are also in Spanish. What what is the funding mechanism? How are you guys funded? Primarily funded through member donations, through foundation funding, and through uh, major gifts. So philanthropic uh, support from major donors. And are you concerned, like, can we maintain this? Because obviously one of the things that happens with not-for-profit newsrooms is like they start with a pot of money and then after whatever a year, three years, that pot is not there anymore and they have to figure out how to sustain. Yeah. So, you know, we are in fundraising mode. Well, now and always, isn't that the way that nonprofit um, organizations work is you're always fundraising. And uh, I, I actually feel like we're in a really good position just because I think that this particular topic is, is of great interest. People are really aware of inequities in our systems, especially gender-based inequities. And so perhaps I'm being a Pollyanna, but I certainly just want to be hopeful that this will continue to be an area of coverage that people want to fund. And so I think that we are a narrow enough niche as far as our coverage goes that we'll continue to have interest. I so we're fully remote too. I have never I'm I one of my colleagues I met in, in a different context years and years ago, but basically I now work with there's eleven of us at CityCast and I've never met any of them. And we we did it I I'm not sure this would work, but it was funny because we've been on all been on Zoom calls a million times with each other and never been in a room together. And um and so we did, a few of us who were having a meeting the other day, did a funny game, which I actually thought was super enjoyable, which we each guessed how tall we thought the others were. Oh, did people tell you like, Did people you, tell you if you had tall energy or not? I imagine that this might get a little different for men who might have some, you know, um, part of their identity built up into their height. That was just a snippet from our Slate Plus conversation. If you want to hear the whole conversation Go to slate.com slash GabFestPlus to become a member today.